right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to Revelation chapter 11. And this evening we're continuing our study in the beginning of this 11th chapter, which is the story of two powerful witnesses, two potent preachers is what I've called them. And these are two preachers, two prophets of God's Word that are very much different than the world has ever seen. These men appear at a time when God is in the process of purging the world from the curse. And there's a, that's the curse of sin I'm talking about. Uh, Some of you men have the curse of your wives. I'm not speaking of that, but the curse of sin. And there's a seven-year period that's coming right after Jesus raptures the church. And this is going to be a time of God's judgment. And this is a time that God purges the earth and He's moving towards the time when Christ will come and set up an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. And during these seven years of judgment, there comes a world leader who's known as the Antichrist. Because of all the calamities that have come upon the world as God is working out judgments upon all the people, uh, the people of the world are looking for someone who can deliver them from such calamitous times. And So they look for someone who can be a political savior, an economic savior, one who can bring peace to them. And so they put all of their hopes and their trust into one whom we know now as the Antichrist. And they have true hopes that he'll restore them to peace and prosperity. And for a while, the Antichrist fits that bill. He's a very charismatic leader. He brings in new economic policies, and uh, he comes with a promise of peace. And he's actually able to achieve it to some degree during the first half of the tribulation. And one of the remarkable things that he does is he brings about a peace between the Arabs and the Jews. And he convinces, apparently, the Arabs to give up their rights to the Temple Mount. And so the Jews are able to build a temple there once again where there has been none for centuries. But what the Jews don't know is that all of this is just a ruse. The Antichrist really has no affinity for Jews or Arabs or anyone else for that matter. He is someone who desires political power and also to be worshipped as God. And so during the last three and a half years of the tribulation, after the Jews have built their temple, the Antichrist will go in and desecrate it. He'll set up an altar there, and he'll demand that everyone bow down before him and worship him as God. Well, the shattering of that peace comes at the middle and so of the tribulation, and so here we are in chapter 11, and we're three and a half years into the tribulation time, and that, again, is the time that the Antichrist takes over the temple, and then he very vigorously begins to persecute the Jews. And so in this time, God sends two potent preachers to preach in the city of Jerusalem, and they come and they call the people to repentance, they warn against the Antichrist and against his policies, And for three and a half years, they are a thorn in the side of the Antichrist. Well, the beginning here of chapter 11 is their story. Now, this is a very brief story, but it's, I think, one of the most intriguing ones that we find in the book of Revelation. And so we find here in verse number 3 that there is a voice that speaks. John hears this voice, and we're not told exactly who the voice is, but I think it's most likely that this is indeed the voice of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to read this again uh, tonight. It's, it's been quite a while since we read the entire text of this story of the witnesses. So we're going to read the entire text from verse 3 down to 14, chapter 11. So if you stand with me, please, and 
reverence for God's word. Let's read beginning in verse number 3. This is the voice that speaks. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now, that's three and a half years. These are two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, And the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are indeed thankful that we're able to be here tonight and to preach the word and for folks to gather together and hear the explanation of Scripture Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to learn something from your word tonight. And we thank you, Lord, as we should always, that we are children of yours, that you've saved us, and we won't actually have to see these great days of calamity that are coming upon the earth. Bless in this message. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Since it's been just a little while since we... uh, talked about these two witnesses. I want to back up just a little bit and review the first two messages that we had on this subject. In the first message, we discussed the description of these witnesses. Now, there are two important designations that are given for them. They're called messengers, first of all, and they are martyrs. They're messengers that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they preach against the false hopes that are, that are given by the Antichrist. Now, for sure, they have a method that's much different than gospel preaching today, but they, they are preaching a message that the people need to, be hear, need to hear who have been captivated by this man, the Antichrist, the one who gives them all this false hope, who is really just nothing more than an angel of darkness who is of his father, the devil. Then they're also called martyrs. They're called witnesses here, and that description comes from the very same word. Witness is the same word that's translated as martyrs in the scriptures. And so in the first century, when John was writing this, the likelihood that death would come for preaching the truth of the gospel was very real. And so when a person was called a witness, it was 
almost equal to calling them a martyr because they would have to give up their life for the gospel. As most of you know, all of the apostles but John became martyrs for the gospel of Christ. And then those who came after the apostles were warned by Jesus and the apostles that they would face the very same type of death they, or same uh, treatment by the world. They would be hated and persecuted and possibly even murdered for the gospel of Christ. And so in the first century, that happened often. If you were going to stand up for the truth, if you were going to call men to repentance, if you were going to preach about the depravity of man, then you had to be aware of the consequences. So these men, although they preach very faithfully what God told them to preach, and they were protected for a specified time of their ministry, yet finally they were overcome and they were put to death. Then in the second message, as we talked about the witnesses, we discussed their demonstration. Uh, They were given special miracle-working powers, and I I called those Old Testament types of abilities because they were able to do things, the very same kinds of things that we saw in the Old Testament. They were able to uh, do things like Moses did. They were able to turn water into blood, uh, and that was a very serious thing because water was in in scarce supply. Fresh water was scarce supply because of what uh, judgments God had already brought upon on the earth. And then possibly they were able to bring other plagues that were similar to those ones that uh, Moses brought upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh. And then also they were able to shut up heaven so that it didn't rain for the time of their prophecy. So that's an indication that for three and a half years they were able to stop rain upon the earth. And that, of course, is reminiscent of what we read in the Old Testament uh, by Elijah. In the days of Ahab and Jezebel, he was able to do that very thing. Then God also gave them powers of protection. If anyone would harm them, then fire would come out from their mouths and devour their enemies. And so, as I said, their methodology of preaching was very much different, and they were different than anything that the world has ever seen before. Uh, Yet they're preachers for a very special time, special preachers for special times. Uh, They may be as, as wise as serpents, but they're definitely not harmless as doves. So the abilities then of sending plagues, of stopping the rain and able to bring out fire or use fire as a judgment uh, reminds us of two Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah. And so there are many people who believe that these two men are Moses and Elijah who have come back to witness upon the earth. Now the Bible doesn't actually tell us that, but I think it is in the realm of possibility. So we're going to move on from the description and the demonstration of the witnesses to look at the next part of this narrative. In verse number 7, the tide turns in favor of the Antichrist, or so it seems. And so next we see part number 3 is their destruction. In verse 7 it says, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And when they shall have finished their testimony. There is a specified, predetermined time that God has given these witnesses to testify. Now, that timing is three and a half years. And for that set period of time, during that whole time, God is going to protect them. So no matter who tries to stop them, God is not going to allow them to be harmed. 
And when you see things like that, I mean, when you see God working in this way, you, you just simply cannot miss that God is the one who's always in control. You know, and many times it appears to us that Satan has the upper hand in this world, that the world is going the way that he wants it to go and that God has no control at all. But the truth of the matter is that God is always working according to his perfect timing. God is always the one who's in control. If we go back into the New Testament and we look at Jesus as he was preaching, uh, there were times when there were people that would like nothing better than to have killed him in the very beginning of his ministry. The Pharisees uh, didn't like Jesus preaching because he was always talking about them and always rebuking them. And if you remember, and we'll study this as we go on in our study of Matthew, but Jesus called them hypocrites, he called them snakes, he called them blind guides. He was always undermining their support and he was always challenging the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so numerous times uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees tried to take Jesus and they tried to kill him. There was that time when he was in Nazareth and he was preaching right there in his hometown and they took him out of the synagogue and they would have thrown him off of a cliff. But the Bible says that Jesus escaped from them. In John chapter 10, when Jesus had finished that great discourse about being the great shepherd of the sheep, the Pharisees tried to kill him then. But the Bible says it was not yet his time. And so they weren't able to do it. And so throughout the three-year ministry of Christ, Jesus stood right there in their faces. He denounced them, and all that they could do was just grit their teeth and hope that they would have an opportunity against him. But God was the one who was in control. And Jesus would be the one who would give up his life. As he said, it wouldn't be taken from him. So this is the way that God works. He always works with perfect timing. And so that's why that we don't worry about what the government's going to do. I don't sit back and fret about what our government does when it tries to make laws against Christianity. And that's why I don't seek to try to influence legislation. I don't try to drag the church into political processes. And the reason that I don't is because I don't need to. God is the one who's in control. God takes care of things. And uh, God is not going to allow anything to stop the gospel from being preached until he says it's time to stop. And so we'll be able to preach as long as God allows us to preach. Now, I know this also, that when God says no more, when God says the gospel is not going to be preached any longer and people are not going to be saved, I don't have any power to change that. I could preach as long as I could ever preach, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit that has to change a heart and bring a person to repentance. And so... Uh, And when God says no more, no matter how many preachers continue to preach, God's not going to save anyone. God is the one who's behind all of this, and God's the one who calls the shots. And so when the time is up for these two potent preachers, the Antichrist has his day. Now we notice in the scriptures here what it says about the origin of the Antichrist. It says here that he is the beast that ascendeth out of the pit. Now that causes a little bit of controversy with people because because it says he's the beast that ascends out of the pit, that they assume, well, he must be talking about Satan. And there's some people who think that this is Satan who's described here. But we notice in other places in Revelation that Satan is referred to as the dragon. He's not called the beast. And so as the Scripture uses the word beast here, I think that this is a definite reference to the Antichrist. Well, if it is the Antichrist and it says that he comes out of the bottomless pit, then there are people who think, well, he's not really a man at all. 
But instead, the Antichrist is someone who's called up out of hell. I have heard uh, people say that what he's going to do is call Hitler back or call Stalin back or somebody like that, and they're going to be the Antichrist. I don't happen to believe that. I think he is a world leader that comes on the scene, and and, uh, he's not going to be someone who's called up out of hell in that way. But rather what the scriptures are referring to here is that his character is like someone who came right up out of the bottomless pit. He has no regard for God. He has no regard for human life. He's of his father, the devil, and so his origin is the same as the devil. It's an evil origin, and uh, he's always going to do the devil's bidding. So he has a very wicked heart, and he has just a, a peculiar adeptness towards all different types of evil. So when God is through with these two witnesses, then the Antichrist is able to overcome them. Now, what I think probably happens here is that uh, the world doesn't even consider that for three and a half years the Antichrist had no power at all against them. I mean, God was protecting them. No matter what the Antichrist did, he wasn't able to overcome them. But this guy is so good that I think that what he does, he deceives the people into thinking that, well, you know, I've really come up with a solution to this. Uh, I know how to take care of our problem. I can get rid of these guys who've been tormenting us. And so when he does overcome them, then all that that does is just add to the acclaim of the Antichrist and gives him even more power than he had before. So he destroys these two witnesses. Now, here's what we have next then. We have a worldwide celebration. It says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And so when these two potent preachers are killed, folks, it is party time. The whole world rejoices over it. There's great revelry all across the world, and the world becomes just like one great big Mardi Gras, celebrating the death of these two witnesses. Now, if you were reading these very same scriptures only 60 or 70 years ago, you'd wonder, how could this news travel so fast? I mean, how does the whole world know about all that's taking place in Jerusalem? How is it that... World over, everybody pops a cork when they find out that the witnesses are killed. And what that does, it just really shows you how amazing that God's prophecies are. God knows all the things that are going to take place in this world. And if you go back to the 1st century, go back to the 5th century, to the 10th century, to the 19th century, people would read this and they would wonder, how could this be possible? Because in their time it wasn't possible. But as I said, God knows everything that's going to take place. He, he knows that we would come to this century and we would have television. We would have 24-7 news stations. We would have satellites that can beam a picture around the world in a matter of seconds. And just anybody the world over can see what happens in the city of Jerusalem almost instantly. God knows that. It just shows you how remarkable that the Bible really is. And so if you read something in the book of Revelation that you think, well, that couldn't happen. I don't see how that could happen. Well, God knows. God knows the timing. God knows exactly what this world is going to do. And all things work according to the counsel of his will. 
So there's this huge celebration all over the world. And what this shows is just how truly wicked that men are. Now, here are two men that were preaching to them, men that gave them their only hope, the only hope that they could be saved from their sins and, 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 and be come out from under the wrath of God. The only hope they have is this message that these men are preaching. And yet when they're killed, they rejoice because of it. Their only hope is gone, and their hearts are so wicked that they rejoice that they can no longer preach the gospel. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, we send out missionaries, and we preach right here in Rona Park, and there are people who care nothing at all about the gospel of Christ. They don't want to hear it. They'd be glad to shut this church up in a heartbeat if they could. And that's how wicked the heart really is. Now, verse number 10 says that they're so happy about this that they give gifts to one to another. Now, that's an amazing thing, too. I know there's one person that I was reading after who called this anti-Christmas. The Antichrist has anti-Christmas. And so everybody just starts giving gifts to one another. They celebrate. They rejoice. You know, I don't know. Maybe they set up anti-Christmas trees. They might do that. And, uh, you know, I think about, uh, you know, toys that kids get at Christmas time. You know, maybe the Barbie dolls and the Ken dolls. And who knows? Maybe Mattel is going to produce little witness dolls. And they're going to give you a little kit so you can learn how to torture and kill the two witnesses. That's just how wicked that people really are. So there's a mob mentality that takes over here, and it pushes people all the way to the depths of their depravity. See, we, we can't even imagine what the human heart is capable of. I mean, there, there is such indecency in the human heart that if God were to allow the evil that's in our hearts to break out in full force, you know what you would do? I mean, if you weren't a believer in Christ, you'd sit right here in this church, and if somebody here, Jack, you give John the evil eye, he might come over there and cut your head right off. That's what we would do if the Holy Spirit wasn't restraining the evil that's in our heart. Now, what this tells us, folks, is that it's uh, just amazing that there's anybody who could say, well, I believe that people are basically good. I mean, people are just basically good people, and all that we really need to do is just educate them. Let's give them a better environment. Let's clean them up, give them a better lifestyle, and everything will change, and everybody will be happy. You're a fool if you think that. The Bible teaches that our heart is desperately wicked. Now, let's look next, then, at how truly evil they are, because next we see the wicked desecration. There's this worldwide celebration, and there's wicked desecration. It says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. Now, I want to notice here first that the way that God describes the holy city... Spiritually, he says, it is Sodom and Egypt. Now, I have to pause here for for just a moment, and I have to comment on this. Why does God use these two particular places to describe this intensified wickedness that takes place in the city of Jerusalem? Well, these two places are, uh, I should say, yes, in the city of Jerusalem. Why does he use these two places, Sodom and Egypt, to describe that? Well, if we take a look at Egypt first... Uh, Egypt has always been a type of sin in the Bible. Egypt is a place of bondage. In the New Testament, when a person is saved, it's compared to coming out of the bondage in Egypt. Now, Egypt uh, was a 
cruel taskmaster and a slave drivers. There were slave drivers over God's people. God's people were in slavery while they were in Egypt. They gave them torturous work to do. And all of that was a type of sin. And so whenever a person gets saved, it's being released from sin. It's being freed from the bondage of sin. You know, a lost person may think that he's in control. And you hear people say things like this all the time, that I do what I want to do. Nobody tells me what to do. But the Bible actually shows us that we are if you're lost, that you are controlled by Satan. You're controlled by an evil heart. You don't do what you want to do in one sense of the word. Now, in one sense of the word, you do what you want to do, and what you want to do is always evil. But what you're doing is following your father, the devil. If you're not a child of God, you only have one other choice. You are a child of the devil. And so what uh, the writer here, what Jesus is pointing out, if he's the one who's speaking here, is the intense wickedness of the human heart. And that's why he calls it Egypt. That's why he calls the wickedness that's taking place. It's like Egypt. It's completely sold out to evil. But notice also that he says Sodom. And with all the wicked places that God could use, why does he say Sodom? And all the cities in the world, why does he say Sodom? Well, likewise, when the Bible wants to speak of the very worst of all, it uses this name Sodom. Now, the Bible, after you read about Sodom in the book of Genesis, the Bible doesn't talk about Sodom again until you get to the book of Isaiah. And there you find with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that all of these prophets speak about the intense wickedness of Israel going into idolatry and turning against God, that great wickedness that they experience, they all refer to Israel as being like Sodom. In the New Testament, Jesus does it, Peter does it, and Jude does it, and Paul does it. And here in Revelation, we see that John does it as well. Sodom stands for the worst. Now, do you know what Sodom's sin was? Of course you do. All of us know what it was. It was homosexuality. We get the word sodomite right out of the Bible. And this is a sin that is so heinous that Paul gave a special description of it in the book of Romans. I mean, he gave a list of many sins, but he stops and he camps on homosexuality, and there he gives us a full description of it. Let's read this in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. It says, Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, if you go on reading there, you'll find that Paul lists other sins. He mentions other sins. But here we see that he has devoted five verses to describe this one sin. And God says, or Paul says, that God has given those up who practice this sin to a reprobate mind. Now, I want to put it very simply to you, what the Scripture is telling us. It is telling us that you cannot live in this sin and be a Christian. 
You cannot live in this and continue in that and be a child of God. And yet, what does our society do? Well, they applaud the fact that there are people who come out of the closet and tell everybody that they're perverts. And so we put, I'm sorry, but that's, that's a word I think we can use. And there are uh, people, you know, that they put it on TV. There are dramas that portray this as being a normal lifestyle. It's paraded in front of our eyes. It's a healthy thing for people to do. It's become a polite joke in the sitcoms. And so they just parade it in front of our eyes all the time. And as you know, there are states like California tried to do to legalize gay marriage. And everybody thinks it's just wonderful. That's the thing to do. A few weeks ago, the press Democrat had a picture on the front page that just threw this up like they usually do. Of all the pictures that they could have shown of the recent high school graduations in Sonoma County, maybe you saw this, but the picture that they chose was a high school graduate being congratulated by his two moms. That was enough for me. So I decided to cancel my subscription. Now, you know this. You have to work with it. You can criticize just about anybody and everybody, but the moment that you open your mouth about someone who's gay, who's homosexual, you're silenced and you're called a homophobe. Recently in the paper also, there was a story about the school system in Vallejo that awarded $25,000 to a lesbian high school student because the other students made fun of her. Now let me ask you, how many $25,000 awards are given to chubby students? because their peers make fun of them? How many $25,000 awards are given to Christian high school students because the whole high school makes fun of them? You're not going to see that. And so you see churches are ordaining homosexuals, they're in the pulpits, and if you say anything about it, watch your back because somebody's going to be after you. Now that just shows you, again, how wicked that things are, how close I believe that we're coming to the time when Jesus is going to come back. And uh, I don't know about this, but the Antichrist might be alive and well today. He might be getting ready to take over. I don't know. He might be living in Washington, (laughs) D.C. But let's come back here to the text here. To the text here. The heartless cruelty of these people is seen in glee and gloating over these dead bodies. Now, the Scripture says here that they're not even allowed to be buried So they leave their bodies out in the street to be desecrated. And the people squeal in ecstasy and delight because these two preachers that tormented them through their preaching have met their demise. J.A. Seiss, who uh, was an old Bible scholar, said this uh, from the 19th century. He said, The exposure of their dead bodies tells of a most extraordinary malignity and spite and attests the extraordinary potency and effectiveness of the objects of it. It shows at once a devilishness of unwanted intensity in the people and a terribleness of efficiency in the witnesses in provoking a fiendishness and resentment so monstrous and unrelenting that it could not be placated by their death but continued to wreak and vent itself upon their lifeless remains after they were dead. That is the depravity of the human heart. I mean, it's just not good. The Bible says it's desperately wicked. And you know, it's no different than it ever was. The human heart is no different than it's been throughout the centuries. It's the same old heart. The difference is whether the Holy Spirit restrains evil or whether he allows evil to go on unchecked. 
And in the tribulation time, what the Holy Spirit does, he is removed from the world in one sense of the word, and his restraining power against evil is taken away. And so people act out that depravity of their hearts. But folks, the evil is there. It's there right now. And that's why it is impossible. It is impossible for a person to turn to Christ without the overwhelming, conquering work of the Holy Spirit upon their heart. There was a man by the name of Charles Finney who lived in the 19th century also who was one of the first, or actually was the first revivalist preacher. And Charles Finney preached a sermon in which he, the title of the sermon was this, Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. Now, did you know that there are actually fundamentalists today who think that Charles Finney was a great theologian? Now, maybe they haven't read Finney, but, and they don't understand that he didn't even believe in a substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, but they called him a great man. Well, folks, the heart is exceedingly wicked, and it won't change until God changes it. Now, that's a different subject in a sermon for another time. So they leave their dead bodies out on the street without a burial because I guess they figure that's the worst that they can do to them. They, they gleed and they gloat over it. J.A. Sice says that their resentment is so monstrous and so unrelenting that you couldn't even satisfy it. You couldn't placate it by their death. And so they would go further if they could. If they could do worse to these bodies, they would. And so they show their utmost contempt for them by leaving them out in the street. Now, this is really something that is ingrained in the human psyche. Most people have respect for the dead. I mean, if you don't like the person, I mean, at least you do have some respect for the dead. You remember that Old Testament story about Elijah's prediction about Jezebel? Elijah said that Jezebel was going to be eaten by the dogs. About 20 years after Elijah gave that prophecy, that prophecy came true. There was a man by the name of Jehu who uh, came to Jezreel where Jezebel lived. And uh, Jezebel saw him approaching the city. And so she started putting on all of her makeup, making herself whatever she was, caking on the makeup, trying to make herself beautiful. And so she looked out the window and she saw Jehu coming. Well, Jehu came up to the wall of the city. And there were some fellows that were standing up on the wall. And he cried out to them. He said, is there anybody up there who's on my side? And there were two or three guys up there on the wall who said that they were. And Jehu said, throw her down. And so they went over there and they picked up Jezebel with all 40 pounds of her makeup. And they threw her off of the wall. And she hit and I suppose she bounced two or three times. And her blood splattered all over the wall and all over the horses. Then Jehu took his chariot and he ran over her dead body. After that, he went inside and had himself a big hearty meal. But while he was sitting there eating, he began to think. He said, you know what we ought to do? We really ought to bury her. I mean, let's let's at least bury her. After all, she is a king's daughter. So he sent the men back out there to pick her up and to bury her. But all that they found were her feet and the palms of her hand and her skull. The dogs had eaten her body, just like Elijah said. But the point of the story is, is that what I'm trying to make out of it, is that at least Jehu, even though he hated this woman so much, and even though he ran over with his chariot, yet he still had the decency to bury her, because that's just what you do. I mean, you you don't desecrate dead bodies. Now, the Bible says that if a person was 
put to death that you couldn't leave his dead body out. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 21. It says, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So if you were to kill somebody and you were to leave that dead body out, either for it for decay or for wild animals to eat it for whatever, that was just a symbol of your utmost contempt. I mean, this is the very worst thing that you could possibly do, is just leave that dead body out there alone and let it decay or let some wild animal come and eat it. But that is exactly what these people do. These are two preachers that we're talking about. And yet again, they rejoice over the fact that they're dead and they watch their dead bodies lying there in the street and they couldn't be any happier because of what's happened to them. Now, I want you to notice one more thing. and We'll be through tonight. The beginning of verse number 10 says, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them. They that dwell upon the earth is an expression to describe people that are lost. Now, of course, the actions of these people prove what their heart is really like. They are indeed lost. But when you become a child of God, you're no longer called they that dwell upon the earth. Because when you become a Christian, you've been given a new designation, and now you're called a citizen of heaven. And we're preaching about that on Wednesday nights in the book of Philippians. You're called a citizen of heaven. I mean, even though you may live on this earth, Yet you're called a sojourner here. You're somebody who's passing through. This is not your permanent dwelling. Now you're a Christian, and now you're citizens of heaven. Now, I think what we need to see from this in conclusion is that the world lies in darkness. We have a message to give. And we need to be as brave as these two witnesses about giving the message of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not facing the same things that they face. God has allowed us some latitude today where we're not persecuted, at least in the sense that the apostles were and others. We're not likely to lose our lives here in Rona Park, California, because we preach the gospel. And so we wonder, why is it that people will not stand up and declare their faith in God? Why don't you do it where you work? Why don't you do it, kids, where you go to school? Why, why don't you do it in your neighborhoods? Why don't people know that you're a Christian? We have a message to give, and if people don't hear about Jesus Christ, they will die and they will go to hell. There is no two ways about this. That's the faith that awaits every person who is an unbeliever. So we have the gospel to give. So let's keep preaching it. Let's keep telling it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you brought us here tonight and We've been able to look into your word. I just pray, Lord, that you might bless the message tonight. Uh, Help us to live as kingdom citizens. Help us to be people who declare our faith wherever we are, that people know by the way that we live, by the words that come out of our mouths, that we trust you as Savior. May we never back down from that. Bless in this time of invitation tonight, and we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing. Mm -hmm.